everyone. Hey, Juan, how's it going? Good, Jason. How are you? Doing well. And I'm happy to present here part two of our three-part series on radicalization and ideology. Uh, In today's episode, we address the moral and legal implications of ideological discrimination, the extent to which government can avoid values-oriented decision-making, a clear functional definition of ideology versus a general definition of ideology, uh, canonical social theoretical literature on ideology like Emile Durkheim and George Herbert Mead, uh, the so-called lone wolf phenomenon, and categorizations of violent activity. So part two really sets the stage for our further reflections on notions of the good and the need to ground ideology in some normative framework to reliably identify extreme, and we'll get more into that in part three in a few weeks. Sounds like we covered a lot of ground there in part two, Jason. So Yeah, a lot. Uh, but that's what we do on Panoptic Pod. Uh, if you so, if you're if you like what you're what you're listening to, and if you're enjoying our episodes, especially the the series of three episodes, uh, please um, get more in in tune with our podcast and acquainted with it by checking us out on Instagram. Our handle is Panoptic Pod. You can also check us out on Twitter. Uh, or uh, by going to our website at uh, panopticpod.com where you can also link to our Patreon. And uh, I am excited to announce, Jason, as you well know, that we are uh, rolling out uh, various tiers for with perks for listeners who would like to contribute to helping out the podcast. Awesome. Uh, the uh, you can contribute two dollars, three dollars, or five dollars per episode uh, to get access to uh, various perks. Uh, for example, you, you can receive in-show personalized shout-outs from Jason and myself. Uh, isn't that exciting? Access to periodic newsletters uh, featuring recommended readings, uh, some topical meanderings, uh, responses to listener feedback, uh, highest priority personal case submission study submissions, so in which we react to topical stories and offer our professional or even academic advice. Yeah, and I'll, I'll mention uh, we're going to put out our first one of those next week, actually. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, originally we had planned on tacking that onto the front of this episode, and then we got so... Uh, We just liked the feedback so much that we kind of made a whole episode out of it, I guess. So uh, Mm -hmm. more to follow on that. Yeah. So that's something exciting to look forward to for those who are enjoying the podcast. Now, if you contribute, you get priority uh, over non-patrons in terms of uh, getting some response from us to a case study submission. Uh, Now, uh, you'll also get access to, quote unquote, Ask Me Anything episodes, to polls, and other patron-only uh, content, uh, as well as exclusive access to periodic live open discussion. So a lot of fun stuff uh, to look forward to for those who yeah. are listening to the podcast and maybe you want to hear a little more in different formats. Uh, you can give whatever you want if you value our content, but you can only afford to give a little bit of money. Let's say 50 cents, that's great. But uh, anything will help keep us going and doing more stuff. So please check us out. Again, uh, 
you can find all uh, links to our uh, Patreon and other social media at uh, panopticpod.com. Awesome. Let's get into it. The views that I express on this podcast are mine, and the same for our co-host Juan Pablo. Well, they're his. Listening to Panoptic, relating theories of communication, power, and technology to practical institutional issues and everyday life. Welcome to the podcast. In a in a liberal democratic framework, can there be politics that uh, consolidates itself around a quote unquote thick notion of the good, or is that something for each individual to determine on their own? And to be, is politics more of the realm of um, of allowing for autonomies to balance themselves out? Uh, and this, this of course, is a very problematic question from the context of ideology, because if ideology always entertains a certain set of values of what's considered correct, uh, as I'll talk about in a little yeah. more, well, in a little bit. That's a great opportunity for us to pivot into thinking a little bit more about the state and politics. I think you know what. What can the state, particularly a democratic constitutional republic, do about the problem of radicalization when there are protections on speech and religion? So we've talked about the role of strategic communications and persuasion in the radicalization process. By extension, strategic communications and persuasion may also have a role to play in the circumvention of the radicalization process. Yes, maybe we can target the underlying strains that create the cognitive opening in the first place, but also maybe we can undercut the radicalizing narratives that fill the cognitive opening. This would involve debunking the radicalizing narratives through argumentation and offering compelling, more benevolent narrative replacements. And this is probably most effectively accomplished at the grassroots or community level where radicalization starts, right? But what about at the state level? Does a democratic state with constitutional protections on speech and religion have the authority to propagandize against or undercut ideologies based on their apparent risk factors? And we should note that the state already kind of delves into this territory, right? We, there are national security uh, exceptions for free speech, things like the Espionage and Patriot, uh, Patriot Acts. Um, Disregard for constitutional rights of communists and uh, potential communists during the World War eras. So it's not unprecedented for the state to find workarounds when convenient, but the U.S. government has not been able to create a viable political legal mechanism for discriminating against people on an ideological basis. And I know I'm framing that in a, an intentionally nefarious way. But meanwhile, there are many CVE specialists that's countering violent extremism specialists who argue that the only way to reliably stop homegrown terrorism is to identify and stop individuals early in the radicalization process. So according to Lorenzo Vitino, he's over at the uh, George Washington Project on Extremism. I've actually met him. Really, really smart, interesting guy. Uh, he says that counter-radicalization strategy 
must be prepared to intervene in ideological and theological matters. Despite the many difficulties of treading on such sensitive grounds, the U.S. government should find ways to counter the theological message of violent Islamism. So this begs the question, do we want to live under a state that discriminates ideologically? And where do we draw the line on this? Um, So if we want to do this work at the policy level successfully, we have to have some way of reliably identifying ideology, and not just ideology, but radical or extreme ideology. And to do this, many CVE specialists argue that you need to start with the assertion of basic values. And this might get back to your notion of a or the notion of a, of a thick good, right? Um, so in a policy exchange article entitled uh, Choosing Your Friends Wisely, uh, analyst uh, Shiraz Mar, who was my professor at Hopkins, uh, he proposes the following basic values. Respect for the rule of law, freedom of speech, equality of opportunity, respect for others, and responsibility towards others. Juan, would these constitute thick notions of the good? That's that's an, a good question. I I'm not sure that they do, and also I'm not sure how these. You know what these bring up to me. I think is how do they how do they link already to what are supposed to be constitutional values, or you could say values that are already integrated into what's a system of rights. Right. So let's look at these one at a time. Respect for the rule of law. Well, in any kind of liberal democratic framework with a constitution that's almost implied, right? A citizen is one who is regulated by laws and the laws, because the state holds theoretically in a, uh, because the state, to use an old sort of political theory concept that everybody kind of knows, because the state is supposedly uh, the holder of the, uh, of the, the monopoly on legitimate violence, if you don't follow the law, you're going to be thrown into into jail, regardless of whether you accept the legitimacy of the state or not. Uh, so respect for the rule of law, you know, freedom of speech is already a right integrated into most liberal democratic constitutions, one way or another. Uh, equality of opportunity is interesting because it's actually not an American value, I would say. It's definitely not integrated. It's definitely not reflective of our... It's not in any... It's not in any kind of actual, it's not part of the foundational system of rights under which we operate. So even though I think equality of opportunity may be a general value that Americans hold one way or another, to one extent more or another, it's not exactly something through which legal, let's say, or juridical uh, analysts would be looking at whether a law is valid or not. Uh, that I'm going to actually backtrack a little. That might not necessarily be true uh once you have, let's say, something like an administrative state with administrative codes, which, for, which in the law are already been written, hey, we value, we are placing a premium on equality and opportunity when people apply to the jobs at the, at the, at the, at the government, for instance. But that's very different from, let's say, a basic constitutional right. Respect for others. This is again part of an ethic that is not necessarily codified in the Constitution. So so it's really interesting the way this list, in a way, intersects and overlaps with uh, constitutional rights uh, that are, that are uh, official and formalized in systems of rights, uh, prim- you know, in most fundamentally are, are, sort, of, are sort of basic uh, bill of rights. 
but in some ways also constitute a general orientation, which is actually something that in a, I would, it's an open question, but something that in a, in a liberal democratic framework, you cannot quite legislate for, right? You can only legislate for it to an extent. So you can legislate, uh, let's say that if you're a business owner, you have to let everybody enter your business, but you have, but you can't legislate people's feelings, right? Uh, you cannot bar people of different races or ethnicities from entering your business, but you can't bar someone from disliking them. So respect for others is a value uh, that would be somehow in, uh, operational in American in American policy. You know, this brings up a lot of questions about what exactly, how does that link up? Maybe we want that, right, as part of our basis of our policies, but it also creates a problem from a liberal democratic framework because theoretically... What you're legislating is people's actions and whether they're in accord with a law, which is a rule. If they fall afoul of a rule, then they fall afoul of a law. But they don't, you cannot legislate for people's feelings. Therefore, or even their words, you run afoul of other uh, dimensions of autonomy, like speech. So this is a really interesting list. I would say that it it sort of steers towards a more a more thick notion of the good, something like respect for others, Right. Uh, can you have a polity? Can you have a political system or a political community where people just don't respect each other? <laughs> probably not. Uh, you probably want that to be a sort of a personality or orientation that people have. And yet, can you legislate for that in a liberal democratic framework? Is a different question. Yeah. Uh, and so this is so you could see how this creates a lot of problems when you start thinking about sort of like. The government getting, even though I would think the government already does this all the time, it has a sort of like, it's constantly creating ideological narratives. At the same time, when it, you know, going from that to, let's say, making it a policy of the U.S. government to sort of like counteract certain ideologies uh, gets into some very problematic territory, as we, especially if we reflect on these sort of idea of like, choosing our friends based on whether they hold values like do they respect others or not yeah um, i see these proposed basic values not so much as something to be legislated but almost like proposed mm. cultural norms or principles i mean it's not too far off from what you see corporations doing the their kind of statement of values or ethics statements remember we we covered google la in the in the last uh, episodes and they talked about honor culture and things like that in their yeah. uh, code of ethics. So how you would legislate against this, you know, if, if I'm a, a state or an arm of the state and I'm trying to identify groups that um, promote these values, I don't know how I could reliably do that because you get into this muddy territory of what is this person's intention or you have to read very closely into their actions to get a sense of what are these individuals' underlying commitments. And that's very difficult and problematic, right? Yeah, and then, I mean, and, and then from another perspective, you could say that we, the system of rights itself, uh, as it works its way into U.S. Uh, policy at different scales, it already, it already sort of creates almost de facto or in a way starts to produce this kind of set of values because let's say the government's not going to hire a company that's like ran by neo-Nazis. Why is the company, the government not going to do that? Because, 
because there would be an outcry that this place is probably one that discriminates against certain people and why is the government giving contracts over to this you know openly neo-nazi group of people this this is you see how one set of 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 rights which are about um which are about protected certain measures of autonomy uh in a, in a way kind of react back against others so even if the government is not in the business of necessarily supposedly making ideological counter arguments against specific groups uh, as policy let's say at the aggressive level for anti-radicalization it at the same time it doesn't it's not also in the policy of let's say hiring uh, for contracts groups of people who are openly discriminatory because that runs afoul of other these other sets of rights that we that that uh, that individuals have um, that we might foresee that a group like that working for the government would would be oriented to to violating so there's you know this is gets this is why of course uh, questions of of where rights intersect and and where values intersect is a very it's what it's what these long legal discussions sometimes are about uh, uh, but I think it is, I mean, it's it's an open question, Jason. I think we have, a, it'd be interesting to talk about a concrete case uh, in which this, this is a matter. But I think the U.S. government itself faces a lot of difficulties uh, if it were to try to get into the business of, of counter-ideology. I'm not saying that the U.S., and the U.S. does this all the time, right? Radio Free Europe or... Uh, let me give you another example. The United States during the after the Second World War or during the Cold War, the United States actively funded uh, literary journals in Latin America, uh, where they would hire uh, literary critics who were more, who were less, let's say, who had less of a Marxist orientation and were more focused on formalistic readings of literature and formalistic interpretations interpretations of Latin American literature and culture and de-emphasize, let's say, uh, socioeconomic analysis, right, as part of a cultural uh, project of countering, uh, literally, ideological warfare uh, in Latin America. That's just one example of probably many where the U.S. was in the the, literally in the business of creating ideology and countering certain ideologies, right? so so it's not like the US government does not do this. <laughs> but I think the question of whether it's whether the US government uh, should be doing this or how it should be doing this is a more dicey problematic question. Well, whatever the case, I I think if even if we're not at operating at the state level and we want to identify an extreme ideology, if we want to utilize that notion of an extreme ideology, we still have to have some operating notion of the good or something to ground ourselves in. So yes, political and legal obstacles at the state level. Still, if, you know, from a more uh, social and community level perspective, um, still, if you want to be, you know, intellectually consistent, this is still some, an exercise that you're going to, going to have to endure and come up with some uh, answer on the other uh, end of it. You know, I noted in, in my, uh, article that, uh, any proposed basic values, they're bound to run up against criticism. And certainly when implemented at the state level will inflame socio-political divisions. So <clears throat> US lawmakers are 
going to continue to face obstacles uh, to addressing the narrative's problem in a way that is both politically and legally feasible. So I think this is a good point for us to pivot and talk about ideology specifically. You know, what is it? And then from there, we can get into more of a conversation about how do we uh, ground it and think about extreme and radical ideology. Yeah. What is ideology and how do we identify it? In uh, the year 2000, there were the sociologists, uh, Robert D. Benford and David A. Snow. Um, I said that like they're dead. I don't know if they're alive or dead. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully you guys are uh, happy and and, and enjoying life. Um, So, but they they published an article uh, called Framing Processes and Social Movements, an Overview and Assessment. And it's published in the Annual Review of Sociology. So I haven't taken the time to get familiar with Benford's and Snow's complete works, obviously, but apparently they developed theories of collective action and group identity, which provided a foundation for theorists like Wiktorwicz to develop process models of radicalization. And Benford and Snow might be useful for the current discussion because they provide a highly functional definition of ideology that we can immediately apply. And it doesn't seem to come with implicit values or earmarks. So for Benford and Snow, an ideology is a narrative that includes three frames. A diagnosis, and so a diagnosis is some event or aspect of social life or system of government that is problematic and in need of repair or change. And then also the attribution of blame or responsibility for the problematized state of affairs. And then the second part is the prognosis. So that's a proposed solution to the problem, including a plan of attack and the frame consistent tactics for carrying it out and often a refutation of the opponent's current or proposed solutions. And then the third part is a motivation, which is an elaboration of a call to arms or rationale for action that goes beyond the diagnosis and prognosis. So you have three components, uh, diagnostic, prognostic, and motivational. Yeah. And as, as I've mentioned to you, I'm going to, I'm going to talk a little bit about how this action-oriented framework of ideology is partial, right? Uh, and maybe I'll elaborate on this a little bit further below, uh, Jason, as you finish kind of wrapping it up, up what this, this framework of ideology does. What I like about this functional definition of ideology is that we can apply it not only to identify or evaluate ideology, but also to create ideology. So much like an effective story generally has a beginning, middle, and end, an ideology should have diagnostic, prognostic, and motivational components. And I'd add that um, targeted ideologies that clearly and succinctly articulate Benford's and Snow's three criteria are more likely to stick. So imagine an intricate uh, Christopher Nolan-type ideology, a dream inside a dream inside a dream, or consider Hegel. Only a small handful of philosophers and theologians describe themselves as Hegelians. Why is that? I mean, Hegel is neither simple nor succinct, and certainly he's not accessible to the masses. So no, if you want to build a large social movement, you need a catchy brand that is accessible to the masses. Let's uh, think about this. Let's go back to our case of Tamerlan Tsarnaev. What was the jihadi ideology to which Tamerlan subscribed? So let's think about diagnostic, prognostic, and motivational. The diagnostic piece, 
is this. The West is oppressive and unjust and encourages deviation from Islam. It wages wars of aggression and provides overt and covert support for unjust dictatorial regimes. The prognostic defending fellow Muslims is the obligatory or logical response to the West's aggression. Only by defeating the Western enemy can the original Islamic Ummah, which is a society governed by literalist political de uh, derivations of Islam, be restored. And then the motivational, the enemy is to be fought on American soil. And for Tamerlan, specifically um, using pipe bombs strategically placed near the finish line of the Boston Marathon. So this is the top-level narrative that ultimately justified, in Tamerlan's mind, an act of terrorism. And it's easy to understand and strategically framed to resonate with Tamerlan's unique experience as an angry, religious-seeking Muslim immigrant outcast in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I emphasize unique because this, this of course, is not the shared experience of most immigrants in the United States, right? Ideology taken in this way is not inherently violent or bad. Um, Ideology can really be anything and exists everywhere. There can be ideological superstructures and substructures governing aspects of our lives, influencing how we communicate, legislate, and judge each other, even without our realizing it. So, of course, there may be alternative conceptions of ideology that are more descriptive or values-driven. So, Juan Pablo, I'm going to turn it over to you. Can we think of ideology as something that serves a functional purpose in any society, what makes one ideology normal and another ideology extreme? Can we solve this problem of a thick notion of the good? Yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about maybe a general framework for ideology by going to some of the canonical social theory uh, or social theoretical literature. And so if we go back and look at uh, the works, let's, let's say, Emile Durkheim, the French sociologist, um, who uh, was active in the at the turn of the century between the 19th and 20th century, or the work of George Herbert Mead, the American philosopher and social theorist, who tried to think about the development of symbolic interaction um, and the switch between, let's say, sign languages to symbolic languages. Uh, Mill Durkheim was particularly f uh, focused on things like... Um, forms of uh, the sacred and uh, ritualistic uh, activity as it held uh, sort of communities together and so forth. These, uh, these thinkers help us to formulate, and I'm doing this through the lens of uh, a specific reading of them, their work uh, by Jürgen Habermas, the German philosopher and social theorist, uh, in his Theory of Communicative Action, the second volume of this work, he has a long a chapter where he talks about these two thinkers and he kind of, um, he's not necessarily here working to develop a theory of ideology, but I used it as a touchstone to try to tease out a general framework for ideology. Habermas, we've uh, never talked about this guy before. No, but <laughs> a very, a touchstone for me in terms of a someone who's, who, touches on many different questions of social theory and is, and is able to put them in, um, is a kind of a resource if you want to think about some questions, or at least a touch, for me, a touch point to, to then go and branch off different directions. Yeah, so I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't mean that in a pejorative <laughs> way. I, I really like Habermas. <laughs> no, that's fine. I mean, it's it's uh, it comes just like both of us have our things that come up over and over again, right? This is a touchstone of someone that I use as a, 
as a kind of foil, but also a touchstone for, for developing ideas. You haven't had prob- the uh, you know, luxury impo- of impo- getting me to talk about Albert Camus yet, but just just well, wait we until, have to. until we do that. I know. I'm surprised you haven't brought him up more. <laughs> uh, so, a general f- our general framework of ideology. Uh, and let me begin by the sort of observation that Durkheim made, where he pointed out that there are similarities between moral authority, let's say the law, and sacred authority, in that you know people's attitudes towards both of these is marked by often by devotion and self-renunciation. So people will act in a court of a, sometimes not even law, but like a moral precept that's even not legal. People will act in a court of a moral precept or a moral rule or with sacred prescriptions and rules and renouncing their self sort of utilitarian interests. And he was really interested by why do people do that? Why would anybody do that, right? Uh, But we, regardless of how we may think um, specifically, I think at our point in time, regardless of how indoctrinated we may have been speaking of ideology, at uh, this notion that humans are by nature sort of rational calculators of their personal utility. Uh, if you look at everyday interaction, most people um, will defer most of their time and have some respect uh, to some kind of moral precept or sac- sacred precept or even legal precept. And sometimes forego uh, utilitarian interest. So what is at the ground of this authority of the moral precept of the sacred prescription was one of the questions that Durkheim brought up. What is it, or more, maybe more de- or deeper, to go to a deeper level, what is it that holds a society of individuals together? And this is where the concept of ideology, I think, is useful for us. At its most basic, and we'll see how this ties into what Jason has been talking about, but at this most, at the most basic we could say that ideology is com- is composed of an interlocking set of ideas about the world, about the way the world is, uh, ideas about the proper social relations through which people should relate, um, and ideas, so ideas about norms, and ideas about uh, identity, notions of the self that are accepted and notions of presentation, self-presentation that are acceptable or authentic. In a given context. Now, of course, this is just uh, the first step, and it doesn't get us very far, because what is knowledge about the empirical world or states of affairs or what the world is like? What does that have to do with normative questions about the legitimate ways of relating? Uh, What does it have to do with identity and authentic or justified ways of presenting the self? How does ideology organize our this idea that we have, this, this, this perception that we have of reality, or understanding of what is valuable, uh, what is worth of our devotion, and hence our motivation and activity. Uh, and then there's another problem, which is that the concept of ideology has this negative connotation, particularly in political everyday discourse in which, or in, even in, in everyday parlance of the United States, in which it's come to designate a set of ideas or discourses that are partisan that are deployed in the public sphere with some particular rather than general interest in mind as in the as and and so and in a way mobilizes classic distinction between doxa opinions and logos reason that goes back to plato so ideological ideology refers to in this in this discourse as a kind of a political interest that is hidden uh, set apart and doesn't really deal with let's say the way the world is empirically but drives some kind of particular interest uh, partisan ideological sort of injection into political 
uh, American public rhetoric. You'll hear this. You'll hear this. This thrown as a critique by one, let's say, politician to another. Oh, that's an ideological. You know, you're being ideological rather than let's say pragmatic or or non-ideological. So this brings up some questions. You know, what is uh, what does ideological refer to then? Is there some kind of perspective on the world that would be beyond ideology, non-ideological, outside of ideology? Uh, this gets us to this question: this question of whether science, for instance, is beyond ideology, and therefore, can one ground a moral or legal principle based purely on empirical facts, and there and therefore derive? And this was the dream of the Enlightenment: a, a universal set of principles that would regulate interactions that are beyond ideology, in a sense. And if not, then how do we separate a good from a how do we separate a good from a bad ideology? And this gets at this question of radicalization, right, Jason? Yeah. So a general framework of ideology would have to sort of allow us to sort of begin answering these questions. I'm going to propose kind of a general framework of ideology here. Now, I would say that ideolo- ideology refers, and this is, I'm going to give a kind of quick definition which we can tease out. Ideology refers to the complex of linguistically structured or language propositions about A, states of affairs, so what the world is like, uh, what reality, you know, what's what's real. B, legitimate norms and normative interactions. How should people relate? What is the right way to relate? What is the wrong way to treat people and so forth? What is the right thing to do? What is the wrong thing to do in a social context? And C, legitimate modes of expression and self-identity and representation. Uh, now, how do these elements interlocked and connected? One way to describe the way they're connected is by showing by by our, by mentioning that our understanding about the nature of reality is actually deeply intertwined with the kind of ideas we have about what's legitimate in terms of the way humans should relate to each other. And I'll give you a very, I think, contemporary example, which a lot of people will st- are still grappling with, which is this idea. Let's say if if I believe that notions of gender are, are static and correspond to a sort of natural male female di- sexual biological dichotomy then i will tend to find uh this whole you know norms that deviate from a sort of uh heterogeneous I- notion of sexuality and sexual relations to be sort of like aberrations um and i will tend to find modes of expression that fall outside of a heteronormative framework as problematic whether as whereas if i let's let's say accept that uh non-heterosexual uh, modes of uh, being and behavior are not sort of aberrant or, and are not something uh, outside of, let's say, are actually quite uh, normal, and maybe even that sexuality itself, or let's say more specifically gender, or notions of gender, male or female, uh, or what it means to be a male and act as a male, what it means to perform maleness or femaleness are actually historically produced, socially produced, culturally produced. Uh, then I would uh, then I would be disposed to think that actually we should we should defend the rights of people who are non uh, hetero uh, who have who have orientation sexual orientations that are not uh, that are not heteronormative. So here's a clear example where people's idea of what's real and what reality is like and what things 
how things really are naturally, quote unquote, affects the way they might think about norms and laws. That's just one, I think, example. So mm. the problem of ideology, and this gets to the question of whether people think, oh, you know, you're born uh, a certain or sexual orientation, or you are socialized in a sexual orientation, or a mix of both, right? Or no, you know, anything that's born outside of a heteronormative is some kind of psychological uh, problem, let's say, like people who send their kids to these camps where they try to sort of like, you know, beat the gay out of you, right? So like that's this, this ideology, the way we perceive reality is deeply tied to the kind of way we perceive norms and also uh, notion, I, I, uh, legitimate forms of identity. So the problem of ideology can be stated in the following ma manner. And here I go a little deeper into this general uh, definition. A group must motivate individuals to act in support of group interests, generalizable interests, or, or interests that the group presents as generalizable, sometimes at the expense of their own individual interests. And I think a great example is, you know, why would people join the military? You know, here's something, especially during a war, right? How do you get... Let's, let's give an example. World War II. How do you get all these people to sign up and join and go fly across the world to go fight someone? Uh, world War I is an even perhaps an even better example. How do you go fight? How do you get Americans to go fight a war that, that most Americans at the time probably perceived had nothing to do with uh, U.S. interests and that was uh, purely a European affair? You have to be able to tap into some kind of motivational interest of individuals. So to do this, a group... Uh, Furthermore, a group must manage the tension intrinsic between uh, in the socialization process, uh, where both the individual socialized into the kind of the norms and the ideas of the collective, but also becomes an individual in this process. So, this process of socialization and the tension between individuation, individuation and, so and socialization is one that um, ideologies must manage. And uh, the group must be able to balance the tension, this tension between individual and generalizable interests in the context of ongoing adaptation to empirical contingency. So let, so let me repeat, just to summarize real quick. The problem of ideology is one that it must make, it socialize the individual and manage their individuality and their, their, pre, their you could say, disposability to want to, to, uh, superimpose their individual interests over generalizable group interests. So it must convince the individual that there are some interests that are generalizable and they should put aside and set aside their particular interests. And it must all at the same time, in the process of, of bringing the individual into the, into the collective and socializing the individual, it must manage this, con this constant tension, which is how does it uh, adapt individual and generalizable interests while it's while it's managing its own reproduction and survival, right? Crisis will arrive, let's say even for a tribe in in you know forty thousand years ago, a crisis would have arised, uh, which they would have to collaboratively uh, a tribe would have to collaborate in order to solve and resolve, and individuals would have to be already disposed to help each other out. Let's say rather than just turn on their heels and run and save themselves. So you can see how these tensions between individualization, socialization, individual interests, generalizable interests, and, and, and uh, managing contingencies or things that arise in the environment are things that ideology, in a way, has to sort of manage and stabilize. You know, this reminds me of the reading we did on 
Bernard Stiegler, where he basically says that, or observes that we all go through a process of individuation and individuation is tied to the social environment in which we find ourselves. You know, we're determined by the ideas and the uh, others surrounding us who influence us and influence our development. Are you saying that ideology is just like a basic part of how we individuate and how we grow into ourselves, essentially? Right. Yes. In a way, I'm saying that ideology goes way more deeply, let's say, than the parlance that says ideology is some kind of uh, partisan perspective, right? The way it's used like in political discussion in the United States. Oh, he's ideological. You can't trust him. The fact of the matter is that we are all in a sense, steeped in an ideology. Ideologies is that, ideology is constituted by that storehouse of generally accepted knowledge, this kind of horizon of knowledge about reality, about values, and about no notions of identity, which are so deeply ingrained that are in our, in our, in our understanding, that form the horizon of our perspective in the world, that they are almost... They remain unthematized. They remain almost like second nature. We are born. We are born into a society, and we are socialized into a language. And from the moment we are interacting with our parents, uh, with the words they're saying, the way they're looking at us, the way they're treating us, the way we're, and, and then further on with in school and with family and so forth, we are so deeply enmeshed in, in ideology that that we can question in elements of it. But there are some elements of it that are so deeply ingrained that they're hard. To, uh, to thematize. And they have to do with these three levels, which I would talk about, these three spheres, the world, the empirical world, the social world, and the kind of personal identity. I And this is a little bit of a tangent, but, you know, I almost see this as a critique of that idea of a lone wolf actor that we see in like popular headlines when we read about terrorist acts all the time, that someone self-radicalized and they were alone in this. When in fact, when there is an ideological correlate, then it ties them into a much larger social network. And yeah. it's almost absurd to to describe this person as a lone wolf. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we'd have to look at explicit examples, right? But, um, but I think people will use that sometimes to discuss, let's say... Uh, deeply perturb individuals who show up in like a public space and shoot up and you know this this very american phenomenon we've seen it in other countries but no no nowhere quite as virulent as, as the united states where we've seen people going into the into spaces to shoot up people right uh in schools and so forth and the lone wolf there has a very unique connotation of some like young person that's become so alienated um that they show up and they just shoot people right and then sometimes kill themselves often shoot themselves right uh but that's a i mean that's a specific that's that's a unique case where i don't know where i would we'd have to talk about how there's almost a failure of ideology i don't know i, I i'm just speculating here but how it's someone who's so alienated from the from any kind of capacity to form an identity that is that is in alignment with the general such a pathological sort of perturbed framing that I don't even know if we could talk about it in terms of it's almost I wouldn't say it's outside of ideology but it's almost like someone who has who really has uh, 
it's hard to it's hard to this, that's really particular because usually those people might have sometimes like an ideological screed right um but often it has to do with like very uh it has to do with the, the failure to form an identity here i'm speculating i think a psychologist could really say some interesting things but it has to fail to do with the failure often it's teenagers young people failure to actually form an identity in the first place and a sort of general pathological hate and resentment and pain that is translated into just kind of a suicidal violence but uh but yeah but i think in other cases i think you're right jason the lone wolf let's say operating um in any kind of no one's outside of ideology so it's whether it's any reaction to one's ideology or a sort of like a reaction from outside um the rating ideology from another ideological perspective one is always kind of in a dialogue with through one's actions right uh with a larger set of ideas that are social and never sort of like produced in the flux or an individuals doing it by itself. Yeah. And it also takes us into this territory of, I mean, there, there can be important nuances when we look at uh, different acts of violence, you know, what differentiates an act of terrorism from an act of organized crime, from a crime of passion, from, yeah. Right. an act of pure psychopathy or um, nihilism. Um, and yeah. then and then where do all these things intersect also? Because we're, of course, we're not saying there aren't sociopathic or psychopathic white supremacists or jihadis or whatever. Of course, yeah. of course there are. Yeah. So, yeah. And I think this would probably connect to this, the thing you brought up earlier about the, the intersection, but also the difference between, let's say, developmental, um, traumas and like kind of kind of like life existential trauma that might happen at one point that by you know developmental traumas that might in a sense correlate with a failure to connect narratives uh that uh relate the world the social world and the individual um and let's say some kind of crisis that puts one into a moment of where what seems certain is no longer certain and one has to search for a new narratives and one is able to do it uh, or one becomes radicalized in one way or another right i mean people go for crisis all the time and don't necessarily quote-unquote radicalize right all most of the time they don't they don't become violent right that's the majority of people but then you do have these cases where you couple the crisis with ideology and maybe a predator on the other side who's targeting you and trying to inject ideology and they're successful, and then you take the individual into the um, state of violence, or at least that is Wiktorowicz's uh, way of describing the process. Hmm. So I'm going to move on a little, Jason, and just quickly mention that you know a corollary of this notion that ideology is at the at the end of the day, ideology has to do with language and narrative. I would say that I would highlight that. I think. Uh, a corollary of this is that because if ideology is a complex of propositions about reality, about norms, about identity, it's related then to a set of rules that regulate not only the reg, uh, how one relates, how one acts in reality, how one re- relates to others, and how one how one I- expresses oneself. So uh, I would say that this is important uh, to highlight that not only is it a set of propositions, but then it relates to a set of rules which are always social rules. Uh, and I would just, just as a quick note to those who are interested in philosophy, I would, know, I would mention how Wittgenstein, you know, 
one of his famous uh, insights was that a rule is always a rule is always intersubjective. One cannot ground a rule in a kind of private world because there would be no there's no really not really any way to check that whether the rule is actually being fulfilled. Now people might say, well, I do it all the time. I I tell myself I'm not going to do this and I don't do it and I know whether I did it or not. That's different. You're already socialized as an individual in language and you already uh, can conceive. Uh, you're already a socialized individual. It's There's no such thing as a rule outside of a socialized context. So anyway, uh, the, the set of propositions that kind of form the horizon that is an ideological framework whether we operate are also have uh, as are have us are structured by a set of rules of interaction with other people with the world and uh, through which we present ourselves so bringing back this idea of ideological ideology to the question of motivation and group cohesion um, I'm gonna have a I'm gonna read a really fast quote quick quote here from a, a book called post metaphysical thinking Two another book by Habermas where he discusses this question. Quote, in any cooperating community, there is a tension between competing and yet complementary imperatives, that of the self-preservation of individuals on the one side and that of the survival of the collectivity on the other, which is held in check but not mastered once and for all through the evolutionary new normativity of an institutionalized order which imposes obligations on everybody. The tension is structural in nature and requires an ongoing balancing between individual and collective imperative of self-preservation. So this gets back to this idea, and that's the end of the quote. This gets back to this idea that ideology has to manage this tension between individual interests and self-preservation. The fact that as individuals, we have this deeply anchored, you know, wanting to be alive and collective interests, uh, collective ideas, interest of of rep- reproducing the, the the society or the collective the community uh, and force and therefore you know motivating individuals to cooperate to act in quote unquote generalizable interest um, here we're talking about ideology and we're talking about intersecting narratives of the self and the collective that mediate between this for this point of tension between individual self-interest and collective interest stabilizing that relation um, and uh, stabilizing that relation with a vertical relation between this idea of the collective and the reality to to which it's adjusting. So there's a horizontal relation, how people relate to each other and what's considered the normative and correct way, and the vertical relation of the way the society views reality, the ideology forms a framework of understanding what reality is and how people relate, cooperate then in order to, to, uh, to, let's say, reproduce the community. Uh, another way to describe this, though this is a slightly different uh, framing than Habermas, would be uh, Louis Althusser's famous dictum that ideology refers to people's imaginary conception of the real conditions of existence, um, and so forth. Uh, but I'll leave that aside for the for us. That's a slightly different uh, notion of ideology because it's it's one premised on uh, critique of uh, modes of production. Uh, which is a slightly different one from Habermas. And f- I think finally we could posit that, and I won't go, go into this in, uh, deeply here, that the motivational basis of ideologies, the way in which they stabilize individual and collective interests, is premised on the capacity of an ideological narrative to align, let's say, the 
quote unquote libidinal economy. So the desire, the, the sort of drives of desire in the subject with uh, the interest of the collective. Uh, so that people actually get pleasure, let's say, in a way, uh, or derive some sense of, of whether it's pl- pleasure or a sense of well-being from, let's say, acting in a generalizable interest. So the way ideology manages this alignment is by positing a set of uh, rules and prescriptions that are supposed to be legitimate as ledger, generalizable group interest. So I would emphasize this idea of generalizable group interest, especially, specifically in the context of discussing what's what's a radical as opposed to non-radical ideology. Perhaps we could even claim, at least posit for discussion, this notion that what differentiates uh, a radical from a non, from a or a radical from a non-radical ideology is that. A, a radical ideology proposes a set of uh, norms or values which in no general uh, polity complex and uh, differentiated and multicultural or pluralistic polity would be able to accept as a way to organize their affairs, Right. Uh, one, let's say, that cuts lines of who gets to be a citizen or not based on things like race. One that posits uh, value, uh, people in a hierarchy of value based on ethnicity or cultural uh, background. Um, or let's say one that does that in terms of religion, believers versus non-believers. Now, we could go back to Viktorovich's Victor, uh, no, uh, model and see how they intercept here. How this general framework of ideology intercepts now and maybe we'll mention a few, a few quick things uh, so I don't keep going on at length but this idea of cognitive opening which you talked about Jason um, if we look at it from the perspective of a general framework of ideology as I outlined it above as a sort of skeleton framework that we could build a product the process of socialization and individuation can of course occur in, in such a manner that the individual is unable to secure a stable notion of the self and this notion of the self is form or this notion of the self is formed that the split between two notions two ideas of what an, an ethos would be which seem incompatible so look at you know uh tamerlan uh and his sort of like split between secular american values and traditional uh, uh, Muslim values, let's say maybe more passive values uh, mm-hmm. of traditional of the community he was interacting with in the mosque that he didn't think were like orthodox enough. So stuck between one and the other, not really one or the other, but also like wanting to forge a sense of identity, right? And then maybe in terms of that gets us to this notion of frame alignment. Here, the misalignment of narratives about the self, reality, and social life, which may be the cause of an individual you know, maybe the cause of an individual susceptible to radicalization. And these can be patched up uh, through a simplified ideological narrative that is able to tap into the a pre-existing motivational complex, whether it's because someone's patholo- you know, alienated, feeling alienated, or it can even tap into that and a deep-seated, but maybe ignored strata of personal identity. As you mentioned, let's say this this idea of a Muslim uh, background, that, term, that his mother, that... Uh, Tamerlan's mother mentioned, hey, you should tap into this, and he did, but it led to radicalization, not to some kind of like more traditional notion of Muslim identity, right? right? That, I think, we could start uh, 
connecting these elements. Uh, if we talk about the second model that you presented about uh, this diagnostic, prognostic, and motivational model, I think we see that that is a framework that, in a sense, is more functional and active oriented than a general framework of ideology. Yeah. Because this Definitely. one talks more about like ideologies as they produce, let's say, a diagnosis, a kind of a map of reality, a prognosis, so a, dis- a response to how to fix the problems of reality, and therefore then produces a motivational kind of uh, uh, engine, you could say. Whereas a general framework of ideology, um, these questions of diagnostic, prognostic, and motivational, uh, they talk about the activities that that ideology carries out, but not the full... Uh, uh, background dimension through which, through which ideologies not only are active uh, generators of, let's say, pictures of the world or ideas of relations and ideas of identity, but also, uh, but also stabilize these in terms of the, the relationship of individuals and the collective, right? Uh, they already give you a, pre, a preformed picture of the world, uh, in a sense, through which you are able to interact and even if you never reflect on that picture of the world, you're able to act in the world based on that picture of the world. That's almost like a second language, right? Uh, it creates a diagnosis that's already there. Whereas maybe if you're feeling lost in the world, if you're having no identity, some new ideology could prov- provide some new diagnostic where you're able to see the world in a different light and then tap into some kind of, let's say, motivation, whether it's pathological, whether it's alienated, in order to then, let's say, uh, act in a radicalized manner. So we could see how these intersect, um, that you could say, you could almost see them, I would say that the notion of the kind of, the model of diagnostic, prognostic, motivational is more focused on the the uh, functional dimensions of ideology, whereas we, if we look at a more a general framework of ideology, it has to do with the large, the, that deeper-seated and more widespread horizon of ex- that, of experience that is formed out of a complex of um, statements about the world that we are already socialized into from very early into their into our life you know from the moment we were born and we were able to start looking into our mother's eyes uh, or father's eyes do you enjoy what you're hearing on panoptic pod Is the application of philosophy, media theory, and communications theory to everyday practical contexts something that you find interesting or useful? If so, please consider supporting our podcast through Patreon at patreon.com slash panopticpod. You can also access our Patreon through our website, panopticpod.com. There you can also drop us a line or a comment Jason and I are always looking for ways to improve this podcast. Your support and comments will help us in that endeavor.